When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. everyone. Thank you for tuning into the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. It's May 2018, and you're listening to Episode 73 of Postmodern Realities, and I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. On this episode, I'm joined by Rebecca Valerius. Rebecca has a bachelor's in biochemistry from the University of Texas at Arlington, and in the past, she's worked as a research scientist. Currently, she's a student in the Master of Arts in Cultural Apologetics program at Houston Baptist University. She's a member of the Mama Bear Apologetics uh, ministry team, and she's a wife and homeschooling mom of two. In the volume 41, number three issue of the Christian Research Journal, Rebecca has written a feature article, and it's called, Is It Abusive to Teach Children About Hell? Rebecca, it's good to have you on. Thank you for having me. So what was the impetus for writing this article? It kind of has a provocative title, Is It Abusive to Teach Children About Hell? <laughs> Two words, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> um, I imagine he actually provides the impetus for many articles for us in the Christian community. Um, he's actually a good source of material. Um, God bless him. Uh, he he has a lack of filter, <laughs> definitely. Um, but I think he also says kind of what everyone is really thinking, but they're too polite to say. This is what he says in his now infamous book, The God Delusion. He says, quote, I am persuaded that the phrase child abuse is no exaggeration when used to describe what teachers and priests are doing to children whom they encourage to believe in something like the punishment of unshriven mortal sins in an eternal hell. Actually, I think that this belief is really prevalent today, that this idea that is child abuse. And um, I say in my article that I think is actually a sign of the times. Of course, hell is an uncomfortable topic in any age. Um, that may be the point, actually. And there certainly are and have been ways um, of using the threat of hell in coercive and manipulative ways with children. Um, I think of a fictional character, Mr. Brocklehurst, if you remember from... Um, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, he uses the threat of hell to kind of scare Jane Eyre into being good. Um, but I think really at the heart of Dawkins' question is, um, is teaching children the correct doctrine of hell, child abuse? And I think this is something Dawkins seems to say. I think also implicit in Dawkins' charge is the idea that ultimately it's untrue. Um, and so I would agree if the concept of an eternal hell was a lie, then it would be wrong to teach it to children. Um, it would be abusive. But if an eternal hell was true, then it would be abusive not to teach them. So um, I think Dawkins' statement here uh, needs to be addressed, this idea that is child abuse. For 
I think that this is the cultural atmosphere that our children breathe, that we breathe. Um, so therefore, we really need to keep this in mind when we teach them this doctrine, actually, when we carry out the Great Commission ourselves, um, because this is really, I think, what a lot of people are thinking today. Um, one thing I think that we need to remember is, contrary to popular opinion, even sometimes our own, um, the fiery judgment of God from the Old Testament is actually not absent in the New. Oftentimes you hear, you know, the angry God of the Old Testament, especially, you know, from the New Atheists today, but then the God of love in the New Testament. Um, but the thing that I found in writing this is that Jesus spoke more than anyone in the New Testament about, about hell, um, more than even Paul. So I think if our Lord talks about it a lot, we need to we need to talk about it and we need to take it very seriously. I know you said that it's the idea of hell is it's merely makes people uncomfortable. And I know that in talking to people who are not Christians, one of their main, um, I guess, arguments against believing in a biblical view of God is that I could never believe in a God that sends someone to hell and to which, to which I always ask, well, do you even believe in hell? And they all say no. So why do you think, give us a little bit more detail about this, um, just this kind of place that we find ourselves in as a culture and why you think we struggle with the idea of hell, particularly right now. Yeah, I think that we struggle with it, um, perhaps maybe in a, in a unique way, um, you know, thinking of hell in terms of its effects on our mental health <laughs> is something very maybe unique to us. Um, I imagine, you know, of course, it's not been a happy subject in any area, in any age, um, but calling it out as child abuse and as abusive is perhaps unique to us. Um, now, one thing I have to point out, and maybe this is something that that you've run into as well. Um, someone like Dawkins is often using his charge that it's abusive as a sort of counter apologetic against Christianity. So, like what you said, indicating, you know, obviously something so uncomfortable and seemingly unjust cannot be true. Therefore, anything that teaches it is likewise untrue, like Christianity. So, I think that in this way, the biblical teaching uh, on hell is often a stumbling block for people today. So. Um, one, two things that I point out in the paper, I, I suspect that at the heart of the struggle are at least two assumptions, um, that we have that are unique to us in the modern world. I think we have kind of a blind faith in human progress. Um, in other words, we are just too sophisticated and civilized to believe in hell, like our ignorant and barbaric ancestors. And I think you can hear echoes of this in Dawkins statement, but I also think um, another problem, another assumption is that we just have an inadequate awareness of sin's effects and the justice that it deserves. And I think this is probably something humans have always struggled with. Um, so I, I, I think that in one way it's unique to us. Another way it's the same old story that's always gone on. And um, one thing I want to point out too is that um, – Someone who says they can't believe in God because he sends people to hell, like Dawkins, um, they think it's abusive. I have to point out that Dawkins really doesn't have anything to offer the child that's much more comforting um, of what happens to them after death. Um, he offers them inescapable non-existence, as opposed to what the Christian offers is a hell that one can escape uh, through belief in Jesus. So we have to remember that the other side of the coin to hell is eternal fellowship with him who is goodness, mercy, justice, 
and love himself. And the gospel tells us that in no uncertain terms that this eternal bliss is actually a gift too. So it's just given to us. So what Dawkins has to offer is inescapable. And I think this is an important difference. So you mentioned um, that we have like a blind faith in human progress, but that's really interesting because I think in our contemporary day and age, you know, we think, okay, we are so much more advanced now than we used to be. We have technology, we have science, we have medical advances. And then plus as a culture, especially in the United States, we're more aware of things that we can, you know, try to counteract like poverty or racism or sex trafficking, those kinds of things. So what would you mean exactly specifically about this blind faith in human progress? Yeah. So, so what I think is um, this, this faith is, is a myth and it's a dangerous myth, especially in the realm of moral progress. So we think that we have somehow morally progressed because we, you know, we speak out against these certain things. Um, It's actually astonishing to me that this myth has taken hold considering the atrocities of the last century. Um, We look back and we can see the gulags and the concentration camps. We can see, you know, Pol Pot. We can see the Khmer Rouge and the, the killing fields and ethnic cleansing. And despite this, we still remain incredibly optimistic and naive about sin and its consequences. Um, the philosopher Peter Kreeft, um, or Kreft, I think is how you say his name, out at Boston College, he puts it succinctly. Um, he says, we are all still Chamberlain in Munich when it comes to the soul. And I think what he's alluding to here are the concessions and appeasements that were given to Hitler in Munich in 1938. Um we underestimate the effects of evil on the human soul, just like Chamberlain underestimated the evil in Hitler. And what the Munich pact did was that they gave away a portion of Czechoslovakia, um, a very strategic portion of Czechoslovakia to Hitler, thinking that that was some good house, stop him and end war and create peace. And it just, you know, it, it was so naive. I mean, Hitler, that was not all he wanted. He ended up taking over all of Czechoslovakia. And that's kind of the way we are with sin. We can let a little bit of sin into our heart and, you know, it's going to stay there and we can kind of compartmentalize it and um, the rest will be okay. Um, I think part of the myth, like you mentioned, is kind of a form of transference. Um, science and technology really have greatly improved the surface of our lives in the past uh, several centuries. Um, so I think we automatically assume that because we know more scientifically, we know more morally too. Um, this is, I think, also part of a broader problem and a very complex problem. And thinkers like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton saw this as our culture moving away from Christianity and away from religion, actually becoming very post-religious um, and moving away from the belief in objective morality. Um, we are subjectivizing morality. Um, G.K. Chesterton is actually one of my favorite thinkers, and um, I wish he was actually more read, widely read today because he stood at the end of an era, the end of the Victorian era, and looked forward to our day. And he actually predicted many of the struggles that we have right now. Um, and because he could see the trends and the thoughts, the thought, um, the popular thought that that was about him that day. So he had an incredible ability to see the ends toward which certain ideas were headed. Um, and his book, um, Orthodoxy is a must read. Um, in it, he has this quote that I want to read that I think really, um, more than anything, just it, it, it's our modern world. It's the world we live in today. He says, quote, 
The modern world is not evil. In some ways, the modern world is far too good. It is full of wild and wasted virtues. When a religious scheme is shattered or abandoned, in other words, um, it is not merely the vices that are let loose. The vices are indeed let loose and they wander and do damage. But the virtues are let loose also and the virtues wander more wildly and the virtues do more terrible damage. The modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. And that's a key point there. He says, thus some scientists care for truth and their truth is pitiless. Thus some humanitarians care only for pity and their pity, I'm sorry to say, is often untruthful. So you have a situation where truth and pity don't kiss. Um, and I think this, this subjectivizing of morality has led us ultimately to a very desiccated view of good and evil and the effects of evil. Um, another great thinker was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He spent much of his life as Soviet dissident, studying evil, being the victim of it. And one of the startling conclusions he came to was that the evil that he hated, the evil that victimized him, was in his own heart. Um, he's the one that has the famous quote that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And I think we in the modern world, we forget this very easily. And um, he, he was someone that was very concerned about, um, about, about us abandoning this idea of objective morality because he saw that this was a consequence. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. And today's guest is Rebecca Valerius, who wrote a feature article in the Volume 41, Number 3 issue of the Christian Research Journal. And her article is called, Is It Abusive to Teach Children About Hell? To read Rebecca's article, please subscribe to our journal. And a six-issue subscription is now at a new lower price of $33.50. So to just subscribe to the magazine, please go to our website, equip.org. Um, I know I think a lot of people aren't aware of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. I think everyone is pretty aware of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, mm -hmm. but that's a good one for people to add to their library. Well, you were just talking about just how we've not really progressed in terms of our morality. And there's, you know, today there's no such thing as objective morality. So how do we cor correct this distortion of what true morality really is? Well, I think one thing is, it is good that Westerns are very concerned with justice. Um, we can affirm this as Christians. Um, our world takes justice very seriously, um, it seems. Um, we tend to be quite passionate about it. I think still in our zeal, we have to admit um, to first our own limitations as to what justice really means. And second, the ways that we actually distort justice in our ignorance of it. So one thing we have to remember that it's, that it's very easy to look back on the past generations and see error, you know, that, that perfect vision, that perfect far nearsighted vision, right? Um, it's much harder to see our own um, problems when we're looking in the mirror. So um, I really love Peter Kreft's advice here. He said, we need to think of Socrates. Socrates was called the wisest man that ever lived, yet he said that he knew nothing. <laughs> So in like form, um, we can also look at those in the church that we recognize as the most holy and saintly. And these are the ones that often call themselves the worst of sinners. Um, the 
best example we have is in the New Testament, Paul. He called himself the chief of sinners, the, the least of the apostles. So that needs to sort of, we need to keep that in mind as we think we understand justice, um, as we think we understand mercy as well. I think we can affirm the love of justice that we see in the secular world, and we can see that it is rooted in the Imago Dei, the image of God that we have all been made in. Um, I just think we need to remain humble about where we go astray and where um, our own limitations are. So humility is key. And as Christians, we have to un- first understand justice in light of the cross, and this is what we teach our culture. We cannot think of justice apart from the cross, actually. So what does Christ's crucifixion tell us about justice and the depths of sin, and also about how these are so um, deeply intertwined with mercy, love, grace, and forgiveness? So in light of all these things that you've been talking about, how how can we teach our kids about hell? Because that's basically the question I think parents are going to have or anyone that interacts with kids as they come to this article, especially, um, you know, just how do you refute Dawkins' view that this is child abuse? Yeah, I think context is key. Um, Note, Dawkins doesn't mention what God was willing to endure to rescue us from those eternal fires of hell. He leaves that out. Um, And, you know, honestly, considered out of context of the cross, out of the gospel, out of context with the gospel, the hell is horrible. Um, I mean, it's like we we have to earn our way to heaven and we just know we're just all going to end up in hell. Um, But within the context of the gospel, we can see that hell is inextricably linked to the cross. And what is the cross to us as Christians? It's God's greatest demonstration of love. So that context is key. Also, context is key when we're discussing God's justice. Um, One of the concepts that I've learned in my studies at HBU um, by studying um, a, a theologian, Thomas Oden, Um, is this concept of divine simplicity. Um, You hear a lot of theologians talk about this, but it's this idea that, um, as Thomas um, Oden writes, all the attributes fitting to God are united and inseparable in God's being. He says, God's perfectly integrated character is precisely the appropriate balance of all these excellences, of all these attributes. So we have to keep in mind that our division of his various attributes is actually artificial. So when we think of his love, apart from his justice, apart from his mercy, we often kind of think of them as sort of opposites. Um, We have to realize that this division is actually artificial and a consequence of our own finitude, our own limitations. We have to remember that unlike us, um, as Thomas Oden says, the fullness of God is present in each and every one of his discrete actions. So the fullness of God's love, mercy, and compassion fill his righteous judgments and his decree that there is an eternal hell. And that's very, that's very hard for us to do, but um, I think we have to, we have to do that. You know, in your article, you write about having a good understanding of God's character, like you were just talking about, as the source of of all goodness, and that knowing that gives us context for understanding the doctrine of hell. So how do parents and, and other adults effectively teach children about the goodness of God, that He Himself is good? Yeah. First of all, one thing that I do with my children is I have them think about 
the good things in their life, the goodness that we can see. And we can see goodness everywhere. This is one of the reasons why I love reading someone like G.K. Chesterton, because he was someone that um, he just had an incredible ability to see the goodness in everyday things and to bring it out in his writing. Um, and I, I think it's really good to remember that that is just a tiny reflection of the source of all of that. And as Christians, we believe that God is the source. I think this also plays into the idea of the hiddenness of God. He's not really hidden. I mean, we're surrounded by so many good things and those come from him. I think we also... Um, and this is something that I've just learned in recent years. Um, we have to prepare our children for the tension with which we all struggle when it comes to Jesus. There's this paradoxical nature of his, you know, he is the one who spoke in very terrifying terms about hell, you know, metaphors filled with fire and torment and darkness. Um, but he is also the one who ate with tax collectors and sinners, um, who offers to carry our burdens, who assures us in very comforting words to take heart and not be fearful. Um, he's also the one who wept over Jerusalem like a mother weeping for children. One of my favorite you know, parts of the New Testament, one of my favorite pictures that we get of him. And this was a city that was actually about to crucify him. So, you know, these two pictures of Jesus that we get in the Gospels, you know, this judge whose verdicts are eternal and very scary, and the Redeemer who then takes the infinite judgment upon himself, these naturally seem discordant to us. Um, but as G.K. Chesterton notes, this is precisely what we would expect from someone who is more than just a mere man. This is God in the flesh. Of course, he's going to be hard to grasp, but he's infinite. Um, he writes that the only way to explain these parent um, paradoxes or contradictions is that Jesus is God. He is the one from whom um, the one who from some supernatural height Behold, some more startling synthesis is what he says in his book, um, The Everlasting Man. So I think it comes back to our limited vision, you know, just like the problem of evil, you know, and hell is part of the problem of evil. Um, in his book, The Problem of Pain, uh, C.S. Lewis described the same tension that we have to live with. He said, he put it this way, he said, so much mercy, but still hell. And I think that this is a tension we have to prepare our children to live with and to not be afraid of. One of the things you um, write about in your article is um, imaginative engagement with the idea of hell and that being a useful tool as well. So can you um, just tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah. And this is something that I study a lot at HBU. I'm very thankful for um, this part of our program. Um our imagination is really the faculty that allows us to investigate and discover what the doctrines of our faith mean. Um, it helps us move from like what I would say, like a mere notional apprehension, you know, that's abstract, you know, that are just words on a page um, to real apprehension. It's the difference between, I think C.S. Lewis calls it a mere Christianity, looking at a map and then actually going to the place that the map is of. And our imagination helps us do this. And I'll point out with regards to hell, our Lord himself saw fit to use metaphorical language when discussing it, um, all of which engage the imaginative faculty. So we should not you know, be, be averse to this method ourselves. Um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia are a great um, um, series for this, not only 
for hell and judgment, but for um, just God himself and um, all of the Christian life. Um, he really, um, Aslan is just a wonderful picture of Christ. Um, he is at one point, he is scary, you know, and but he's also very good. Um uh, his the last book in the the series, the last battle, provides um, a wonderful look at the afterlife, the cons- uh, at judgment, and of course for older uh, kids, his book, The Great Divorce, is all about that, all about the afterlife. Um, I, I really don't think we can underestimate the the tremendous value of imaginative engagement because um, it really does help children move towards real apprehension of of what it means to be eternally separated from God. And that's what hell ultimately is. Um, it is eternal separation from all that is good, from goodness and love himself. And when we say it, you know, it's just words. So we have to help our children think through what that might actually be like. And and I have an example of this. It was really fascinating to me. So I asked some atheist friends what they thought of Dawkins' comment, if they thought that teaching hell was child abuse. And of course, some said yes, you know, unequivocally yes. But one of my friends said that, yeah, he, he didn't think it was that scary for children. Um, and he said, he said, I think kids, you know, are prepared for, you know, scary things. They believe in dragons and such and ghosts and such as that. He said, and anyway, today the church, you know, they don't really teach, you know, the the, the old view of hell, their view today is much more watered down. All they call it is an eternal separation from God these days. And I was thinking, wow, so you think that's not so bad, just an eternal separation from God that, you know, in his mind, this was somehow milder um, than the fiery torments of Jesus's teaching. And to me, this is very revealing. This is saying that he's never really imaginatively engaged with the idea of being separated from the source of goodness and love himself. And so um, I think this just illustrates why imaginative engagement is very important. So in addition to imaginative engagement, are there any other practical suggestions you have for us about how to teach kids about hell? Yes. Um, first of all, I would say, you know, talk through the various metaphors, the various passages um, in scripture about hell. Um, and, you know, you know your own child. So do it in a way, you know, that meets with their emotional and intellectual maturity, you know. And again, always keep this in context um, um, the discussion within the context of all of God's attributes. Um, within the context of the gospel, you know, don't do what Dawkins did and rip it out of context. Um, and I would say, discuss, do not hide these disturbing aspects from your children because they will be exposed to this. Like I said, this is the, the cultural atmosphere that we live in. And it's much better for them to be exposed to this in an environment that is safe and where they feel free to ask questions than in an environment where they feel ashamed or they feel embarrassed. And that will happen if they were to hear that from someone like Dawkins. And I think that this will really prepare them for statements such as Dawkins, and they will run into this in our culture. Um, these are the myths and the assumptions of our culture. So helping them think critically through these in clear ways and in compassionate ways will prepare them for this and also prepare them 
as they grow in the faith to carry out the Great Commission. Um, Another thing is um, one thing that we do on Mama Bear Apologetics, we encourage our moms to have their children ask some questions. So have like one day a week set aside where, you know, this is come ask your questions about, you know, your faith to us. And um, I think this is really good. It encourages your children that, um, that they can think deeply about their faith. And it also enables them to see that their faith can withstand doubts and questioning. Um, and I will warn you, be prepared because <laughs> they will come with some very tough questions. Uh, children are amazing. Um, and one of the things that's really great about this is you will pretty quickly find that they will give you questions that you cannot answer. And that'll be okay. It's okay to tell them, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, our youngest did this recently um, to her her Sunday school teacher, and I was so thankful for his response. He said, I don't know exactly how to answer that. I need to think about it. Let me come back to you next week. And that was really, a, that was very good modeling for her to see that an adult can not know something about their faith and not totally abandon their faith. Um, the question that she asked was, you know, why did God make make Satan if he knew that Satan re- would rebel? <laughs> so um, children will amaze you with what they will ask. And another, know, oh, okay. I was going to say, I know I've said this several times on the podcast, different ones. So if you're newer to the podcast, you probably haven't heard this story. But when my oldest son, who's now a junior in college, was three, mm-hmm. he asked us, um, he said, you said that God is a spirit, but you also said that Jesus is mm-hmm. God. And you said, God doesn't have a body, but <laughs> Jesus is human. How come Jesus has a body. So I was just like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah, that stumped me. How do I explain this to a three-year-old in language they can understand? It's so um, I want to kind of circle back to what I asked at the beginning, and that is, I'm sure you have friends and I have friends that say, you know, on even Christians, frankly, which is, is also, you know, kind of troubling is that, you know, I, I can't believe that God would send, you know, people to some internal judgment mm-hmm. and torment um, if he's supposedly good and it's yeah. for things that they did in this lifetime. So how would you equip us to um, help our kids answer that questions? And also probably for some of us, how do we answer that question for friends and family who that's a major stumbling block for them to reject Christ? Yeah, it really, it really is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's like the problem of evil. It is, it's tough for us. Um, Peter Kreft called this the precise population statistics of hell. You know, we don't know. Um, we don't know them. But Jesus gives us pretty dire warnings. The gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the reality of it is many will be there. Um, we don't know why. <laughs> I mean, other than the rejection of God and the rejection of his gospel and that we all deserve to be there. It's by grace that we aren't. Um, I think that one thing that we can focus on is that this reality of hell really does underscore the Great Commission and underscores what God has given us, not only to carry out the Great Commission, but within our own lives to seek to love him and love our neighbor. Because at the same time, we are told here again, one of those paradoxical statements that it's not the Lord's will that any be lost, that he rejoices over the recovery of one lost sheep amongst the many. So um, 
Lewis called this the apparent disproportion of eternal damnation um, and transitory sin. But again, I will return to Thomas Oden. He said it, he, he put it this way. He said, it is largely those that persist in an optimistic account of human sin who do not clearly apprehend the enduring effect of unremedied sin and therefore cannot perceive the justice of everlasting punishment. So again, it's just that diminished view of the consequences of sin and how deep they are. I mean, it took our God to atone for them for us. <laughs> um, I also think that the key here too is that it is self-imposed. God knows the heart of everyone that rejected him. And it is clear from scripture that it is a rejection of him. They rejected God. They do not want to be in his presence. Um, C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain, and I think he's actually quoting Satra, but he says, the door to hell is locked from the inside. So it is done by choice. Um, and in the end, I think we have to rest in God's goodness. That just as, as we do with the problem of evil, we can say we do not fully understand it, but we rest in his goodness. And, and it's not that he's asking us to rest in his goodness without evidence. There's evidence of his goodness all about us. And most importantly, there's evidence of his goodness in the cross. Well, finally, I want to end with some fun rapid-fire questions for Rebecca. So, Rebecca, fruit salad or green salad? <laughs> green. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Oh, early bird, totally. <laughs> Call or text? Mm, text. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? <laughs> I am an extrovert that's trapped in an introvert's body. Does that make sense? <laughs> And you're a homeschooling mom, you mentioned on the podcast. So what's one of your favorite things about homeschooling, you know, besides the obvious ones that you get to teach your kids and those kinds of things? Mm, I don't know. I just, I love having my children home with me. I do. I love it. Well, thanks, Rebecca, for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Today's guest is Rebecca Valerius, and she has written a feature article in the Volume 41, Number 3 issue of the Christian Research Journal, and her article is called, Is It Abusive to Teach Children About Hell? To read Rebecca's article, please subscribe to the journal. A six-issue subscription is now at a new lower price of $33.50, and to subscribe, go to our website, equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI, Christian Research Journal, Hank Hanegraaff, and the Bible Answer Man on Twitter. Follow the Bible Answer Man on Instagram and please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities podcast on iTunes and rate and review our podcast. When you rate and review our podcast, it helps others find our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Hank is also live streaming each week on Facebook and YouTube, so check equip.org for dates and times. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's new audio podcast, Follow Hank Off the Grid, where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. <laughs>